Hey, Val. Hey, Al. Hey, Stu. Hey, Alan Val. Welcome to Decommentaries. Thank you. Welcome to you. Welcome to our listeners and welcome to our very special guest, Stu Krieger. Shout out. Stu shout out. We're doing a Stu shout out episode, everyone. Surprise. Uh, we're not telling anyone about this beforehand. So this is a big surprise for our listeners uh, right now as they're listening to us. So Stu, please, uh, you know, any of our longtime listeners, they probably know who you are, but please introduce yourself to anyone who might be tuning in for the first time. Alrighty. Uh, I am Stu Krieger. I am currently a professor at UC Riverside in the Department of Theater, Film and Digital Production teaching classes in film and television writing and on kind of the business of the film industry. Um, prior to my move to academia in 2006, I was a film and television writer for 30 plus years. Uh, among my credits are The Land Before Time and 11 Disney Channel original movies, which is how I am here with Alan Val. And it was a wonderful life and a perfect time to make the segue into teaching when I did. Wow. Amazing. That's great. Uh, we're honored to have you on. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Stu. My pleasure. Um, Stu's really big on Instagram, big Instagram fan of D commentaries. Um, so <laughs> we slipped and slided into the into the DMs, and here we are. <laughs> we did it. Our first Instagram relationship. Nice. Yeah, Stu. Let's talk about. Let's just dive right in. First of all, I just want to list off the DCOMs that you wrote. And then we can kind of go back and kind of start from the beginning. But Alrighty. just so that everyone knows which ones, tell me if I've got this right. Xenon, Smart House, Phantom of the Megaplex, Rip Girls, which you are uncredited on, Xenon the Sequel, The Poof Point, True Confessions, Gotta Kick It Up, Going to the Mat, Xenon Z3, Now You See It, which is another one you're not credited for, and Cowbells. Is that correct? That is correct. Very good. Wow. What a list. Val would win uh, DCOM Jeopardy. (laughs) 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 Also, just personally, I, I was so happy when I found out that you wrote The Parent Trap 2 because I... Our listeners know this because I talk about it all the time. But when I was a child, I my dad had recorded like on the VCR, the Parent Trap 1 and then the Parent Trap 2 behind it. And I watched those movies like all the time. Like I am obsessed with the original Parent Traps and the new one. In fact, Al and I dressed as uh, characters from the more recent version of the Parent Trap for Halloween this year. (laughs) So big fan of that as well. I was very happy to see that. So anyway... Let's start. I would love to know just like how you kind of ended up in like screenwriting in this profession, in this uh, arena in the first place. What I have said in other interviews is I was a little bit of a freak as a child. Um, So I grew up in Rochester, New York. I had absolutely no relatives in the business, no connection to the industry. And from about first grade on, I would say to my parents, I'm going to go to Hollywood and be in movies. And then the other thing I used to do was I would steal photos out of our family photo album and write on the back, yeah, I mean, write on the envelope to Walt Disney, Hollywood, California. And in the, on the photo, I would say, look at me, I'm a really cute redhead. You should put me in one of your movies. 
And see, I've kind of gone blonde red with age, but I was like flaming red hair. That, in fact, my mother tells the legendary story of when I was born. The doctor said I've delivered ten thousand babies, and this is the reddest redhead I've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, so that was my pitch. I'm a cute redhead. You should put me in one of your movies. The very strange thing is he never did. I never got a call from Walt saying, come on out. Then sort of, you know, beyond that, I was in plays all the time. I was acting. I was doing all that. But at some point I started writing as well. Um, I wrote an inc- <laughs> incredibly embarrassing coming of age novel when I was in high school that I still have in a trunk somewhere. And when I went to college, the college I was at didn't have a specific film major, but they had a communications major. And at the time it was like, I don't know if it's, I'm going to land in journalism or film or whatever, but I know I want to go to Hollywood and at least give it a shot. And so I graduated. I moved to the West Coast. I started applying for any job that was even tangentially related to the industry because, like I said, I had no family, no connections. So I applied to be a critter at Disneyland and, you know, my pitch to them was, look, I'm short. I can be Chippendale. I can be Donald Duck. I got a good ass. I could, you know, I can do any of these things. <laughs> Again, didn't, didn't get hired doing that. Uh, applied to be a page at NBC Studios, a tour guide at Universal, just anything I could think of. And the first job I got was at the Herald Examiner newspaper, which has long since gone belly up. But I was hired as a copy boy, which is basically a production assistant, you know, running between departments. I, any minute I wasn't on an assignment, I was hanging out in the entertainment department and bugging them and asking them questions. And eventually they started letting me write movie reviews and go on celebrity interviews. And when I would do the celebrity interviews, at the end of each one, I'd be professional journalist, Jimmy Olsen, cub reporter. And then at the end, I'd say, if you have five minutes, can I pick your brain? And whomever it was, I interviewed Suzanne Plachette when she was on the Bob Newhart show and Sally Struthers when she was on All in the Family. And I would say, wow. you know, if you've got five minutes, I want to be a writer. Do you have any suggestions? And the thing I do have to say is everybody was phenomenally helpful and generous with their time. And the kind of the message I got pretty quickly was you really can't do anything without a writer's agent. You know, most production companies won't read unsolicited material. They don't want to be open to lawsuits. So while I was still working in the paper, I was writing scripts at night and sending them out. And I got an agent who was interested in representing me. And boom, boom, boom. One thing led to the next. He got me my first job. Subsequently, I got a little bit more powerful agent. He got me kind of into the major leagues and it rolled from there. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, we're the same person. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So what what really started your relationship with like Disney and Disney Channel? Um, I'm going to stand up for one minute to bring you something that I got to pull (gasps) off the bulletin board behind me. Oh, my gosh. Uh oh. (laughs) Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? So this was me and Haley a few years ago, but, you know, I, I, part of the destiny of all of this was, I was was a Disney freak child. So all of the original, like you said, the original parent trap, Pollyanna, Swiss family, Robinson, son of flubber, absent-minded professor. Those were the movies I grew up on and grew up on to the point of, I am in the middle of three brothers and both of my brothers were jocks. I was the arty kid. I was the one that wanted to be indoors watching movies and drawing and doing all of that. And my, like I said, you know, pulling photos out of the photo album to send to Walt Disney. It was always, I had this, you know, that was my world. That was, that was where my imagination was sparked. I wanted to be in that treehouse with Swiss Family Robinson. I wanted to be in the flying car with the episode minor professor. 
I wanted to discover I had a twin, you know, I mean, all of that, <laughs> that was you know, my growing up. And the ironic thing, which I think I might've told you guys in one of the emails is my first just absolute blind crush was on Haley Mills. And when, you know, I was of the era when the Beatles were the big thing and all these girls I was in school with would bring fan magazines with pictures of the Beatles and stuff. And I'd always flip through and if there was a picture of Haley in it, it was like, can I rip this out? And like, there was literally at a, a point, one whole, whole wall of my bedroom wallpaper. Pictures oh. of Haley. So the fact that I can now do this and show you a picture <laughs> of me and wow. being pals and hanging out together is just amazing. Oh. So when I first found out that Disney was doing the sequel to Parent Trap, and as you articulated, it was, you know, a sequel using the original Haley as the original twins again versus the Lindsay Lohan remake. Mm -hmm. um, I said to my agent, you have to get me this job. You do not understand what this means. I will pay <laughs> them. Just let them tell me. <laughs> but this is my job. I have to have this job. And the agent called me back a few weeks later and he said, I really tried, but there's already a writer on it. It's in progress. Uh, really sorry, but I made the effort. And he said, and part of the problem is they have a very specific shoot date because Haley Mills is committed to do a play on Broadway in January and they have to shoot before that happens. So it's like, okay, well, you tried. And smash cut to like another four weeks later and my wife and I were on vacation in Hawaii and I got a phone call at five o'clock in the morning and my, my, it was my agent. I was like, what are you doing? It's five o'clock in the morning. And he said, oh, I knew there was a time change. I thought it went the other way. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, nobody. And he said, but anyway, you're going to be really happy. Uh, Disney called and they said the script they got is not working for them. Now they're really up against a wall. If you can be back here on Monday for a meeting, the job could be yours, but you got to come in and pitch your take on it. And so the thing I said to them is if they're not happy with the script, I don't want to read what they have. I could write this movie in my sleep. Just let me come in and pitch, you know, my take on it. And I went to that meeting on the Monday and pitched my take and they said, Oh my God, this sounds great. Yes but you have three weeks to write the script because we need to green light it and do pre-production and still be able to shoot on the original schedule. And I went, I could write it tonight if you needed me to, but we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and so wrote it in under three weeks, sent it in, and somewhere in the archives of the world, there's a script that came back. Michael Eisner was the head of the studio at the time, and the script came back and it said, great draft, green light, let's go, exclamation point. And we went into production. <laughs> Wow, that's such like a per that's a movie story. Like that story is, yeah, so that is was, a script in and of itself. Yeah, so it seemed that was kind of my toe into Disney. And then really what happened in terms of the full-time move into family entertainment was uh, when my son was born, I was working on Amazing Stories, which was Spielberg's first entree into television. And I worked on both seasons of it. And partway through the second season, his head of development came to me and she said, Stephen and George Lucas have always, they've had a long time idea about an animated dinosaur movie that they want to write. Um, and she said, I was talking to Stephen last night and we both feel like you've become an even better writer since you became a dad. Is this something you would be interested in doing? And as I tell my students all the time, when Steven Spielberg and George Lucas say to you, do you want to do this thing? You say yes first, and then you ask questions. <laughs> You know, it's not about like, you know, again, how much you going to pay me? What time? To, how much time? You just say yes. And yeah. Figure out everything from there. And and part of what that turned then into family entertainment was, was 
going to movies with my son and looking at what was being done and thinking like there's a smarter way to do this you know you can entertain kids without having to talk down to them it doesn't all have mm. to be stupid dads and pee pee caca jokes and those you, know, <laughs> you really can do things that are about something and still reach kids and have an impact and and so it was a very deliberate and happy turn into family entertainment for that latter half of my career yeah so that <clears throat> excuse me sorry that was the the pivot point was yeah. for that when you kind of went into family film yeah that's really interesting um i watched i rewatched the land before time this morning because i i've obviously seen it like probably a thousand times as a kid but i hadn't seen it in you know 20 years or something but i i did notice it felt very modern like it it, it felt very timeless like it didn't feel like something that I watched a million years ago, it felt very much like it could come out of, you know, Pixar or Disney right now and it would still like work really well. So well, I'm very, very happy to hear that because yesterday morning I woke up to an email to one of my from one of my colleagues here at Riverside, who is the director, Patricia Cardoso, who directed Real Women Have Curves and is directing television currently and is an amazing filmmaker herself. But the email was to me and the rest of the faculty that said the Motion Picture Academy Museum is holding a screening of The Land Before Time on January 21st. We should all go. And I said to Patricia, I'm so glad you know, because this is the first I'm hearing about it, but how exciting. <laughs> um, no one told you? Yeah. And my entire faculty is making a field trip and going to the museum to see The Land Before Time. And what you just said was so wonderful to hear because I have not seen it in many, many years. And I haven't seen it on the big screen since it premiered in 1988. So, wow. To go to the Academy Museum in their big, beautiful, state-of-the-art theater with all of my colleagues is just incredibly exciting and touching and a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, even watching it on a small screen today was a pretty fun experience. It's really interesting. The art is done in such a fascinating way where it's almost like a painting as the backdrop. Um, and the contrast, like, it's not distracting. It just looks really cool, like, between the animation and the background. It's really neat. Yeah, and that really is the, the beauty and genius of Don Bluth, who was just, we did two films together. We also did a troll in Central Park. And Don, you know, both as a talent and as a human being, was it, it just, both of those were incredibly positive, wonderful experiences. Wow, that's so neat. So I, I have to go back real quick because I have one question. So you met Haley Mills. So does that mean that you were on set for filming for Parent Trap 2? Well, this is another, you know, sometimes be careful what you wish for and sometimes it works out, uh, which was we shot the film in Tampa, Florida. And normally what I've done on most of my films, especially with all the Disney Channel projects, is I would be there. They usually do a table read with the full cast a couple of days before, and then there's a couple of days of rehearsal and then shooting. And so my MO usually was I would go for the table read. I would be there for the rehearsals. I'd be there for the first four or five days of shooting and then go. Looks like you're under control. I'm out. Okay. Uh, part of it is because it's really uncomfortable to be the writer on set because there's nowhere to stand when you're not in the way. <laughs> uh, and it was always, you know, I'm a, even before cell phones, it's still I'm a phone call away if you need anything, if anything comes up. And, yeah. you know, one of the really good examples of that was the sequel shot in South Africa. No, wait a minute. They shot in New Zealand. It was Z3 that was South Africa. So they were in New Zealand and I got a call like 10 o'clock at night. Um, we're shooting the climactic song. And in the sequel, it was the galaxy is ours. The zoom, zoom, zoom was in the original, but galaxy is ours was the sequel. And they said, we're shooting the song tomorrow. And the lyrics just came in 
from the staff songwriters and they're terrible. They just, they really don't get what the movie's all about. And this is another, it sounds like all I do is work under pressure, <laughs> but they said, <laughs> we are literally shooting it tomorrow. If you want to take a, a whack at the lyrics and see what you can come up with. <laughs> and, you know, until about 2 AM, I wrote something and I, this was the days when you had to stick it in the fax machine and send it to right. New Zealand. And, you know, send it through. They, they called me back and they said, this looks great. We're, you know, turning it over to the songwriters. And then a couple hours later, they love it. We're recording it now. We're shooting it later. And Wow. That's so cool. I like that song better than Zoom, Zoom, Zoom for the record. <laughs> Hot take. And, and, that is, and that is my one and only songwriting credit, but I still do get ASCAP residuals for it. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to go listen to it a few more That's times amazing. on Spotify. Get you a few more cents. <laughs> yeah. That's so, <laughs> that is so cool. Well, that's actually funny. We wanted to ask you about that. So when they were shooting on location, because some of these like at least filmed in Toronto, if not, you know, like New Zealand or somewhere farther away, yeah. did you go to those locations or, or were they doing the table reads and everything, you know, prior to leaving? Well, this is the wonderful world of Disney. If it was in the country, I got, well, even Canada, I did go to Vancouver for, um, the original Xenon was Vancouver, uh, Phantom of the Megaplex and True Confessions were Toronto. So I was there for all three of those. I was in Salt Lake for Poof Point. Uh, but anything that went any farther, they weren't paying for me. So. <laughs> so, so I didn't make it to New Zealand. I didn't make it to South Africa, but I did get to go to Canada and anything in the continental United States. Wow. And do you know the decision behind filming in other locations and countries? Yeah, it's always economic. So different tax incentives incentives at different times change. And so, you know, if they get an offer from Vancouver or Toronto or New Zealand that says, we give you this amount of credit back in tax breaks and stuff, and suddenly a $5 million budget becomes a $3 million budget. That's how you end up in these places. Interesting. We noticed there was like a period where they were filming so much in New Zealand, and we had I had to think that it was economic. There's yeah. no other reason to go halfway around the world, right? Whenever a side character has a terrible <laughs> accent, we know that they're, they're in a different country. Especially when they're trying really hard to make it sound like an American accent. Oh, yeah. There's been a couple of recently where we were like, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> um, to the point of working under pressure, I was curious because for a period of time, these movies were coming out really fast. And even for for you, you know, there were years where you had two coming out in a year. Like, was that a lot? Like, were you working on other stuff? Did you have a lot of time to work on these or was it pretty compressed? The thing is, I am a fast writer. Um, I never let the Disney Channel know in the day just how fast a writer I am. Um, but what was happening, in, and it's part of the reason why I was as well employed by them as I was, which was they, the original, as you said, series of DCOMs were one a month. And so the first Friday of every month, there was a new movie premiering. And one of the things that I was able to do, and, and I'm going to back it up a tiny bit, because one of the things, you know, advice to any of your listeners who are, are aspiring writers is do your research, do your due diligence and know who you're going to speak to. Because part of the re reason my relationship once the DCOMs existed began was when I went in for the interview on Xenon, the only movie that they had finished making at that point was Under Wraps, the mummy movie. Mm -hmm. And when I got the call to go in, they explained, you know, we're starting this franchise. We're going to be doing these Disney Channel original movies. As I said, you know, I grew up on the OG Disney movies. And so I said, you know, do you have a sense of kind of what the mandate of these movies are? And they gave me a little bit of a pitch. 
But then I said, are any of them done yet? And they said, we have a rough cut of under wraps. And I said, can I please see that before I come in for the meeting? So I watched the movie and then I went in and Xenon was based on a very thin kid's picture book, which also is somewhere in the office here. Um, <laughs> but it literally, it was like a 20 page kid, you know, a girl living on the space station in the 21st century who had a crush on a rock star named Protozoa. Those are kind of the things that survived from the book. And when I went in for that first interview, they said, we're going to be very candid with you. You are the 19th or 20th writer that we've talked to about this, but we're still trying to find the right person. You know, pitch us how you would adapt the picture book into the, the film. And, and I said, to me, it's Eloise at the Plaza on a space station. And a few more sentences and they went, you're hired. And the reason you're hired is because the 19 writers that came before you, almost every one of them gave a variation on it's Star Trek meets 90210. And they said, we're the Disney Channel. We don't do Star Trek. We don't do 90210. We do do Eloise at the Plaza on the space station. <laughs> and, you know, that's why I got the job. And so it was the combination of having grown up on those Disney films and knowing what they were about and knowing yeah. what the DCOMs were based on my questions and watching under wraps. And that's where the relationship began. So to answer your question about, you know, the pressure of it all is, after the first draft of Xenon went in and they were really happy with it, then it was like Smart House was already a project that existed and they had several drafts that were kind of the shape of the movie and the whole idea of a Smart House in the future. And they said, but we feel like kind of the characters and the relationships and the emotions of it aren't where we'd like it to be when you take a whack at it and, you know, tell us again, read it and come in and pitch how you would tweak, you know, whatever you would do to improve it. And I did and I got hired and, so kind of what I learned to do with them was I would put the Xenon script down for a couple of weeks. I would work on Smart House. I'd go back to the Xenon script. I'd turn that in. And then I'd go back and work on Smart House for another week and then turn that in. And sometimes <laughs> if I was done, I would sit on it for a week or two because I didn't want them to know quite how fast I was. <laughs> <laughs> because once they know, that's what they expect. Um, right. But especially through, they held a party celebrating the first 50 movies that they made. And at that party, Gary Marshall was the head of the channel, announced the fact that I had written 10 of the 50. <laughs> so one fifth wow. of the output was pretty good. But, yeah. But part of it was through that whole cycle, I was always working on it, at least two at a time and just kind of rotating them out. And, and, you know, I think, again, part of the reason I stayed employed there was if I said, you'll have it a week from Friday, they had it a week from Friday and they were always on such tight deadlines. They needed somebody they knew that they could depend on and that was going to deliver something they could go out and shoot. Wow. wow. Be dependable. That's <laughs> always the way. So Stu, some, some of the DCOMs are based off of books. Did, did they really say like, let's do a majority of these movies based on books? Cause it's kind of something that's a little bit easier to interpret. It was really all of the above. And so one of the points of pride for me is on the 10 that I am credited on, I was either the only writer or the last writer. And the point of pride of being the last writer means that you wrote the draft, they decided that now we're ready to go shoot. So, you know, I was always very proud of that. But among them, I mean, Xenon, all three of them obviously sprang from the kids' picture book that I mentioned. True Confessions was based on a novel that a producer brought to me. And, okay. and this is another thing about, you know, making yourself dependable and knowing your market is, when I went in for that meeting, they said, we're going to be really honest with you. Two other groups of writers over the last years have brought us this book, and we just weren't wild about their take on it. We know you. We know what you can do. We know what you would do with this. 
with you attached were willing to move ahead with it. And so it wasn't, like I said, it was a producer who brought it to me who said, I know you have a relationship with them. It seems like something they'd respond to, let's go. And then the fact that they, you know, like I said, had turned down other writers, but wanted to do it with me was again, exciting and flattering. So that's where that came from. Phantom and the Megaplex, Michael Healy, who was the head of movies, as opposed to Gary Marsh, who was the head of channel. Um, Michael called me one day and he said, I woke up this morning with this title in my head, come pitch me what the movie is. And so, <laughs> so he said, you know, Phantom of the Opera, update Phantom of the Megaplex, come talk to me. And so we, wow. yeah, so we just sat in the room and spitballed for a while. And by the end of it, he was like, yeah, that's our movie. Go write it. That's <laughs> improv, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's where that came from. Um, Oof Point, I forget if there was source material or not, because it was another script I inherited already in progress. Um, I don't think. I just came in and did kind of the character and emotion pass. Wow. Um, okay. It's it's cool. This is not a question. This is just a statement. <laughs> it's it's interesting that you are responsible for that portion of a lot of these scripts because, like, one thing that bothers me about movies that are not on this list, uh, in in certain cases, is that they are just constantly trying to be kind of funny and silly. And to your point, when you were talking earlier about Land Before Time, like trying to sort of treat. Uh, children with respect, I guess, with your writing and then like treat their emotions with respect and their relationships with respect. Um, I think that really shows through in these movies. Like, I think all of them have such strong relationships. Like, I remember distinctly having conversations on our episodes that we've done already on some of these movies, like especially in Smart House, like the conversation between, um, oh, I can't remember the characters' names, but the son and the dad um, after he like blows up at dinner, like that is such a beautiful moment that you wouldn't necessarily find in like a TV movie for kids. But you, you know, gave it that like gravitas not to speak down to TV movies for kids. <laughs> These were incredibly important to me growing up. Um, but uh, yeah, I just I I, I guess I want to like thank you for sh like giving those these things to us, because I think like teenagers especially are going through a time where it's really hard. They're feeling so much and it's really hard for them to articulate like what what they're feeling and put words to their emotions um, and communicate with their parents and things like that. And like you helped us by sh like showing us in these uh, in these scenes and in these moments. So. I, I really cannot express how much that means to me because it was an incredibly conscious choice and conscious decision because it was the same way my wife and I parented. You know, we never talked baby talk to our kids. It was always I, and, and a lot of the fights that I would get in at the Disney Channel is they would say, you know, a kid wouldn't say that. And I would say, well, my nine year old said it at dinner last night. And they would go, well, she's exceptional. I go, she's great and everything, but she's really, you know, she's not. And I said, you know, part of my mission with these movies is I would rather have a kid turn to their parents and go, what does that mean? Or what did they mean when they said that? Then talk down to them. And I'm not going to do that. And, you know, and the other strong man that I kind of glanced over earlier, but I was constantly fighting with them because there was such a trope in most family movies of the father's an idiot. You know, if the mom leaves the room, the blender, the tops off the blender and shit's going everywhere. And, you know, the wash machine's walking across the floor and the baby's in the dryer. And, you know, it's, and it's like, I got to be honest with you guys. My, my wife goes away for the weekend and the kids don't die. So <laughs> I am never, I will never write anything with my name on it that has an idiot father. I'm not doing it. And there was a couple of times, well, you know, what if dad fell down the stairs? 
Is it like, no, like put that in somebody else's movie. It's not gonna <laughs> you know, but, but those were things that mattered to me. So to hear you, you know, resonate that it, it just, it means an incredible, a lot. And then the other thing that I have said in other interviews is my office was always at home and the studio where I work is at the front of the house, but it's got double pane and acoustic doors, like a recording studio. And from a very early age, my kids were trained. If the doors close, dads work and leave them alone. And if the doors open, you can go in and talk to them. But the other thing I would do, and this is, there's the scene in Smart House that I'll tell you guys in a moment, but I would literally be working in my office and my wife was a stay-at-home mom by choice. And so the kids, you know, all their friends were over all the time. And there was always, my house was full of kids all the time. And I would open the office door. I'd listen to them for 15 minutes. I'd close the door and start typing. It's like, you know, <laughs> this is what they're talking about. This is what they care about. And there's the scene in the smart house where the brother and sister are together and Katie's bouncing on the bed and uh, Ryan Merriman's calls are annoying spice. And, you know, they have full interaction. <laughs> and I was, my son was probably 12 years old and we were, I would get sent the dailies every day of what was shot the day before. And they would, you know, come on the little DVD and I would sit and watch them and send any notes and thoughts. And so I was watching him with my son, who is now a filmmaker himself. And he, that scene happened and he turns to me, he goes, dad, Rosie and I had that same fight a couple of months ago. <laughs> and I said, I know. And that's why you're going to be able to go to college someday, buddy. <laughs> you know. But that's amazing. I mean, yeah, that explains why it felt so real for sure. Yeah, it is real. And and Stu, um, to also have me compliment you a bunch. Um, uh, so something that I do when I go through and I, we always do our first impressions of a movie. I always give a number ranking uh, of the movie. Val does not. I started it episode one and I've kept it through now through our almost 50 episodes. Nice. Um, but I, I want you to know that you have a really good track record uh, of Al's rankings over here. Um, <laughs> and I have to say that uh, Xenon the sequel is, is probably my favorite is probably my favorite decom. Nice. Mm-hmm. That makes me They're very cool. happy. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but I think that the, the sequel is better than the original. So love to hear it. I like the sequel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, go for it. No, I was going to say Z3 was originally supposed to be a feature film. And then the, the collaboration between the studio and Disney Channel ended up being a power struggle of who, who was the ultimate arbiter. And so that movie never happened as a feature film, but that's the one for me is a wee bit janky because it was written as a feature and then shot on a Disney Channel budget. (laughs) Right. Gosh. We haven't gotten to that one yet, so I haven't seen it in years. So I now look forward to that. The fact that it's things like, like I said earlier, they shot in South Africa and in one of the climactic scenes, there's like this torrential windstorm and everybody's (laughs) hair is blowing and their face is blowing. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's even props that go by in the background and they just kept going because they were on a really tight budget. But the first time we saw the movie, it was like, yeah, this this looks like a feature film shot on the Disney Channel budget. Oh my (laughs) gosh. Wow. That's amazing. Did the, speaking of the budgets, I mean, I don't know how much insight you had into this, but like, did the budgets grow at all over time? Like once the concept was kind of proved to be successful? Yeah, and, and again, that really depended. Like the Xenon movies definitely did. We got a little bit more money each time, but it was already a proven concept. And right. you know, it wasn't true across the board. Different movies had different budgets and different scales and all of the rest of it, but it was kind of 
those things became negotiable once there was kind of a foundation of this is something that's already proven it's worth. Right. Now all they seem to do is sequels, so they must have really liked that. (laughs) (laughs) It feels like there's a new Descendants or Zombies coming out every week. Um, So I want to ask you about these couple movies that you weren't credited on. Is that just because you, kind of like you were saying earlier, didn't write the final script, or is it some other reason? Yeah, there's a very, very specific Writers Guild formula for who gets credit on screen. So part of the reason that exists is they feel like it devalues the whole idea of if somebody came in and did one pass and most of the material they did ultimately doesn't end up in the film, they don't want credits to be 72 writers, which, you know, it's not unusual in Hollywood, not just at Disney, that over the course of time, over the course of development of a project, there'll be sometimes upwards of 20 writers that have passed through the project. And so the way the Writers Guild formula is structured it's heavily weighted in favor of the original writer. So if it's a piece you created, you really have to be largely rewritten uh, for anybody else to get credit or to share credit. And it's very, very rare for the original creator to get knocked off entirely. You'll still have some form of credit. But then one other insider tip is if you see credits that say written by Al A and D Val, it means you wrote at different times. If it says written by Al Ampersand Val, it means you are a writing a team. team you wrote together. Yeah. So whenever you see those credits, and sometimes you'll see Al Ampersand Val A N D Stu, and it means you guys wrote as a team, and then I came in later and did something. So that's like a, a secret code that you can pay attention to now and take your own credits. But then to answer about the two I was uncredited on, to be a second writer or later. You have to be judged to have written 50% or more of the final film. And so okay. what happens with the how a Writers Guild arbitration actually happens is the Guild collects all drafts from, like if there's an original treatment all the way through the shooting script and any other drafts that happened along the way. And then it's an arbitrary panel of three writers. I served on the committee for many years where you just get a box of stuff, you know, read all of this. Here's the formula to have in front of you while you're reading and then Again, it's a subjective thing. And so in particular with uh, The World's Greatest Kid Magician, when that arbitration was done, Michael Healy, the head of movies I mentioned before, called me and he said, to be honest, pal, you got screwed. You should have gotten credit on that. Oh, no. But but sometimes it can be even the panel, excuse me, decides, you know, you did 48%, but it wasn't quite 50, you know, whatever that is. But it's always going to be subjective. And, and, And to be very honest, I've had it go both ways. I've gotten credit on things where I went, Wow, I did, you know, (laughs) and other projects where I probably thought I should have and didn't. So in the end, it all works out. Wow. Nice. Uh, Stu, do you have like a favorite decom that you worked on where you're like, overall, the writing process was great. um, The cast was great. Everyone was wonderful. Or do they all kind of like hit the same mark for you? I think the two, and just in terms of the creative experience, were probably the original Xenon and True Confessions. And the, the reason for that was true. It was another thing I, I knew from the beginning that Shia was attached to it. Um, and we had a window of shooting that as well because he was still doing even Stevens. Um, but that, of everything, not just Disney, but of all the 30 years of film credits that I have, that was the least amount of drafts that I did on anything. Um, and so from first draft to shooting script was only three drafts. And part of it was... Once the first draft was done, everybody was like, yeah, this is pretty much the movie. And then, you know, there were some tweaks that happened along the way. There's some things that happened 
but in production is based on locations and shooting schedules and all of that. But, but it was a pretty smooth, we were all making the same movie from the very beginning. And so, and you know, Shire was wonderful. He was great fun to work with. And so that whole experience was just very positive. And then I, as, as I mentioned earlier, I was there for the rehearsals and the table read in the first week of shooting. And then I left and the very last day of shooting was nine 11. And they ended up having to drive back across the country because no planes were flying for a month. And the very last day of shooting, that's what happened. And so the entire cast and crew, after a couple of days of, you know, just waiting for the literal dust to settle, ended up having to drive across country. Like I said, they couldn't get a plane back to L.A. Wow. Wow. That is wild. Yeah. And then with the original Xenon, it was just so much fun because, you know, all of the language was stuff that I got to invent. I got to go to the jet propulsion lab in Pasadena and talk to the scientists about stuff they were working on. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, it's very funny because a bunch of interviews I've done in the last five or six years are tech places calling me about both Xenon and Smart House. And, and they'll be like, well, you invented Alexa with Pat. You invented the iPad <laughs> with, the, you know, the Zap pads. Like, Dude, where, where's your patent on all these things? That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. I think we talked about both of those things. In those we definitely episodes. did. You're ahead of your time. Yeah. Wow. But but yeah, part of it was that I went and talked to scientists. I asked questions about what they were working on. And then the other thing with Xenon in particular was I always thought that where a lot of sci-fi things aired is there would be these phenomenal leaps in a very short period of time. And so, you know, things that were set 20 years in the future, somebody's in flying cars and you know, all these things. And what I started from was going backwards. And I said, if I jump now, 1998, when I wrote it, back 50 years, you know, men were still wearing suits to work and women were still in dresses and we were still driving cars. And, you know, things happen, but they're not these phenomenal leaps forward. And so with Xenon, mm-hmm. I tried to do the same thing. And and part of where the zap pad came from is like, we got big computers, we're going to have smaller computers. It wasn't like, you know, called it. Like, oh, I'm amazing. I, I have my crystal ball. <laughs> it was just so You also invented Zoom, basically, because <laughs> they were talking to each other on the video all the time. There you go. <laughs> yep. Wow. Stu, I have a question for you that has nothing to do with um, DCOMs. Um, how did you meet your wife? It is the best question you possibly could have asked because it's another, like, you can't make this stuff up. Um, very, very, very early on my, in my career, the very first film I ever actually did any writing on was the classic motion picture that I'm sure you both have in your video library called Satan's Cheerleaders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I watch it every, uh, every Christmas. <laughs> um, and, and the guy making those films had this incredible <laughs> formula. Everything he did was a bunch of young girls and a bunch of washed up movie stars that had enough credibility that they they could get preliminary financing. And there's a thing called four-walling where you would open these low-budget movies and drive-ins in certain theaters for a week, make your money back and move on. And that was what this guy did. And so Satan's Cheerleaders has John Carradine, who's the patriarch of the family that was in Grapes of Wrath, uh, Jack Crucian, who won an Oscar, or I don't think he won, but he was Oscar nominated for The Apartment. Yvonne DiCarlo, who was Lily Munster on The Munsters. They were all like the older people and they were all, I think they're all dead now, so I can say they were basically all washed up alcoholics who needed a job. And and then he would cast everything with these nubile young girls for that part of the titillation side of things. And my now wife of 41 years, 
Pierce was one of Satan's cheerleaders. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was hired as a production assistant and to do a rewrite on the film. And the great thing with our relationship is the second movie I did, which is with these same producers, but a different director, was called Goodbye Franklin High. And it was the first feature that I wrote that got produced from a script of mine and sold credit on. And it was really, really low budget. And so I was they couldn't afford a casting director. So I would read with the actors when they came in. And again, life is a very funny thing because one of the actors who came in and was potentially cast and then backed out because he got a better offer was Dennis Quaid. And Dennis Dennis Quaid now what? lives like five houses or seven or eight houses down the street from me. <laughs> so it's a small and wacky world. But anyway, I was reading with all the actors when they were coming in and about a week into it, the director said, you're funnier than any of the people we've interviewed. Why don't you play the lead guy's best friend? And I said, <laughs> because I'm not an actor. And he said, no, no, you'll be great. You can do it. So I ended up getting cast as the lead, one of the lead, lead guy's two best friends. And then the director who had also worked on Satan's Chillers cast my then girlfriend as my girlfriend in the movie and <laughs> later became my wife. So the great thing is every once in a while that will show up on cable. It will show up streaming somewhere. And I we always get a call from somebody in our life going, I was up at four in the morning and this movie was on. And, and I think it was you and Hillary in it. Is that possible? And, yeah, that was us. Wow. And I wow. watch it every Christmas. <laughs> as you should. Yeah. Uh, my wife describes Satan's Cheerleaders as a porno movie with no sex. <gasps> so, Perfect. That's I what everybody wants. I love yeah. it. So basically, wow. there's a score, production value, everything else. It looks exactly like a porno movie. There's just no sex in it. <laughs> all right well sold. sold did she continue to act um that is part of the reason why where we began today that i was able to have henry winkler and ron howard as my guests because she was on happy days for five years uh she was one of the kids in arnold she was always in, in the background and this incredible thing of like i do not know who these people are that have this kind of time but she was an extra. She occasionally had lines. She made out with the Fonz a bunch of times. She was always dancing when the boys had their band. She was the drummer in the band with Potsy and <laughs> Ralph and Richie. What? Uh, but somebody in the last six months sent us a three and a half minute video clip of all the highlights of just her. And we have no idea who made it, who, how they got Whoa. access to the clips. No idea. Wow. But a friend said, have you seen this yet? And it's some fan somewhere. <laughs> wow. Thank you to that fan. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. So that's, that's the reason that I've known Ron and Henry for 40 years is because he was on the show for five years. That's incredible. Man. Another part of my childhood. I used to watch it on Nick at night all hey. the time. <laughs> so good. The enemy. Uh, my, yeah. <laughs> Our enemy. Our enemy, Nickelodeon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's so funny. I always had an affinity for Ron Howard because my dad is also redheaded and looked a lot like Ron Howard, which still does kind of, but more so when they were younger. So I was always like, this, this is what I can tell you. He and Henry are two of the nicest human beings on the planet. But this is the fact that he, he will go to his grave still being Richie Cunningham, because when they did my class, like I said, it was via Zoom. And after class, I always, you know, whom, whomever my guests are. The first thing I do as soon as I'm done is send a thank you. And that was so amazing. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to be with my students. And I know how much they loved it. And so I wrote to both of them separately, but I wrote to Ron and 
the thing that he did is it was a three-hour class, and about two hours into it, Henry said, hey, you guys, I'm so sorry, but I have another appointment. I've got to jump off, but it's been so great. And then the thing that Henry did is because it was Zoom, he would look at the screen, and it would be like, so, Val, what's that behind you in the background? And, and then the kids would go, Henry Winkler said my name. And, and <laughs> So anyway, I sent them each an email, and I wrote to Ron about, you know, thank you for your time, and you were so great. But when Henry said, I'm sorry. I got to jump. Ron goes, I don't, I can stay. And then he stayed another 45 oh. minutes after Henry wow. left. And then after class, when I sent the note, this is what I get back. Are you kidding me? That was a blast with an exclamation point. Oh. And it was like, see, he's still Richie. <laughs> that's, oh, that's so, so amazing. Great. I love knowing that. I love like finding out that the people who I look up, look up to are actually worth looking up to. Yeah. Because sometimes when you find out the opposite. people are good people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I will say, you know, for all the reputation that Hollywood has, I have had many, many, many more of those people. I mean, Spielberg is an incredible human being. And, you know, we got distracted before when you were asking about getting to be on the set of Parent Trap too. And I, you know, on the plane to Tampa, flying down there going, oh my God, what if I get there? And she's just a horrible human being and all of my dreams and all of my wall of photos and everything are shattered. And <laughs> the first, I got in in the evening and the next morning we were having a production meeting and I was already there and Haley came through the door and she said, where's Stu? And I said over here, oh my God, darling, I have to tell you how much I love the script and come give me a hug. And it was like, we're gonna be fine. Uh, and like I said, that was 1986, and we are still friends. We had breakfast together with her partner and my wife in January of this year. And dreams. Come I true. love that so much. <laughs> Stu, all of it, all of the stuff you're saying is just extremely validating for me wanting to be a part of this industry, and I appreciate you so much for that. <laughs> because yeah. sometimes it's really hard to want to keep mm -hmm. going. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. But really, I mean, everything I've said about many, many more decent human wonderful, creative, generous people that I've encountered. And, you know, are the ego, are there the egomaniacs? Are there the people? Absolutely. But in terms of if I had to line up all the ducks of all the projects of all the everything that I worked on, and Don Bluth, you know, is also in that category. And I don't think I said this earlier, but he had an autobiography come out this year. And I hadn't talked to him in conservatively 25 years. And I read the book and I looked online and found him contact information and just wrote to the contact and said, you know, I worked on trolling Center Park and Land Before Time with Don. I'd love to say hi if he's around. And two days later, I got Don's on the line. He wants to say hello. And we had a half hour catch up phone call. And, oh, you know, so. Wow. That's amazing. And um, Stu, you did a TED Talk in 2015. And Val we both and I watched both it. watched it. Um, <laughs> now, this is a this is a note for our listeners to pause right now and go watch the TED Talk because it's incredible. But um, yeah. kind of going off of our conversation of like every like people are good and like you know keep going. Um, I think what your TED Talk was about of like choosing like joy, choosing happiness, choosing this like optimistic, like life to live in, um, is really important for a lot of industries, like including this one. Very much so. And, and, you know, another story that kind of illustrates that is, again, I've been incredibly blessed. I've had an incredible journey. It's all been amazing. And, you know, I have a beautiful home in Brentwood, California. And several years ago, a couple of my friends were out visiting from Rochester, New York, where I said, you know, as I mentioned, grew up. And my backyard has like two tiers and we were up on the upper deck and my, it's kind of looking back at the house and our bedroom was 
the windows were open and my wife was laying on the bed with the two kids reading to them before she put them to sleep. And, you know, I was standing with my two childhood friends and they said, when you were growing up in Rochester, New York, did you ever imagine this would be your life? And I said, I don't want to be an asshole, but yeah, I do. You know? Yes, and, yes. And I kind of, but, but I kind of feel like if you can't see that as a possibility for you, if you can't imagine this is a life I can have, it's not going to happen. And and for me, when people, you know, especially now with my students and stuff, they'll say, you know, why do you feel you succeeded? And I always say it's because I was too stupid to know I shouldn't. You know, it was sort of like. I had this attitude of somebody's writing this stuff. Why shouldn't it be me? You know, I, I grew up on it. I know it. I care. I want to put positive stuff back in the universe. I'm just going to do it. And, and you know, it sounds simplistic, but, but I really believe if you can't have that vision in front of your face, it's not going to happen. What, what would you say for aspiring writers <clears throat> um, who have a little bit more uh, negative self-talk in their in their brains and uh, imposter syndrome and sort of fear both the potential failure and the potential success simultaneously. Like it's, you know, on the one hand, I can see myself giving an acceptance speech in an awards show. But on the other side of it, I, I am just terrified of the entire prospect. And when I sit down and I open final draft, I'm like, maybe tomorrow and then like walk away. So like what, what, what advice would you have for someone like me or me, I guess too, um, if they're having that feeling? Yeah. Well, no, it's actually three parts. Number one, get to therapy sooner than later. <laughs> I, I already did. I, so check, check. Human being on the planet. I um, love that Stu loves therapy. <laughs> absolutely 100%. Um, number two, and this is something I work with, with all my students, but in particular, my female students Every time they start to give a note and it begins with, I'm sorry, but I'll say, I'm going to stop you right there. You, there is absolutely no need to apologize for having an opinion. It is something that I am single-handedly going to beat out of this generation <laughs> just by repetition, if nothing else. And, and it, like I said, I believe it is particularly endemic of women and it's time to stop apologizing. And then part three is right. You got to be writing. And the thing that I say to my students when they ask about writer's block, I say, I never had writer's block. I had a mortgage. So somebody was waiting for me to pay bills. I had to pay bills. I had to be writing. And if you're writing, you're learning. You're getting better. If you're writing, there's something to make better. When my students will come in and say, I'm not feeling it this week, I say, I don't give a shit. Go write something. If you write something, I can talk about it. If you write nothing, I can't help you. So if you, wow. Think, wow. If you think you are, if you want to be, if you're a writer, write. Okay. Val's going to listen to that clip every morning when she wakes up. Yep. That's going to be my morning affirmation. Yep. Whether you're jogging or meditating or doing yoga, whatever you're doing, just have it on. But but that's it. That's what you got to be doing. Okay. I will for you. That will make me very happy. (laughs) Wow. And then we'll all get breakfast every January. (laughs) (laughs) That could happen. Check in. Yeah. yeah, we'll check in. It'll be great. So this has been so much fun. I have to wrap in a minute because I have another meeting, but just if okay. there's a final question, anything. Well, I, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about your book. It seems like you've written in like every medium known to man, but now you've yeah. got a book coming out, right? Yeah. So it's actually my second novel. Um, the first one came out in 2017 called That One Cigarette, available on Amazon. Um, <laughs> 
but the, but the new novel in particular, this is the reason why I put a toe into social media and the reason you guys found me uh, is because what the book is, is it's a family comedy. And when I was first approached by the publishers, they said, we really feel like the audience that grew up on your movies who are now young adults themselves with starting their own families would really relate to this, but you've got to kind of find them. And so part of what we've been trying to do with the social media campaign is get that rolling now. And then when the book comes out next year, go, by the way, if you like the movies, you'd probably enjoy the book. Here it is. Wow. Um, so I would give Perfect. you a sneak peek. Uh, it is called Raft, R-A-F-T. And it's about a man on the verge of his 50th birthday with a wife and two children who is having a bit of a midlife crisis because his son's leaving for college. His father-in-law just died. And he's having this moment of, I'm only 50, but is all my life going to be about loss now? Is everything going to be about the things that are going away from me as opposed to coming to me? And mm. he wants to take his family on one last family vacation before the son goes to college. And the wife says, you're out of your mind. This is happening. That's happening. What are we going to do with my mother? It's not like we can take her to an old people kennel. It's just not going to happen. Give it up. Buddy. <laughs> and they get in a tremendous fight. He goes to bed angry and he wakes up the next morning and he's a penguin. <laughs> And there's, I did not see that. Yeah. No reason, no rationale. And, and kind of the pitch line that I use to sell the book is when men f face a midlife crisis, some buy a hot sports car, some trade in their wife for a younger model. Clark Whitaker turned into a penguin. <laughs> I cannot wait to read this book. Yeah. Yeah. So part of the thesis is, you know, that's what life is. People shit happens and you got to deal with it. So, wow. Um, I thank love you that. so much for sharing. I truly can't wait. Uh, yeah. I am three books ahead of my reading goal this year. So I'm adding Raph to my list for 2023. All right. Al's a prolific reader. I'm, I'm a big reader. Um, now, the <laughs> other things, Stu, um, before you go, because I know you only have a few minutes. Um, we end every episode typically with a fun game. I didn't want to end with a game this time, but I did want to end with something fun for you. So the reason why we uh, adore you so much is because you have written a lot of our favorite decoms. Obviously, we talked about it. Um, but we do our Stu shout out every time you have written one of our favorite episodes. <laughs> and uh, in the one that I think I sent you, um, we said we were going to uh, potentially make merch one day. Um, so we'd like to share with you our logo um, for our for our uh, Stu shout out merch. And here she is. <laughs> so nice. we have our Stu shout out. Well, uh, everyone's going to be able to wear all of your merchandise. Um, but we just wanted to um, uh, show you a little bit of appreciation there um, for being so incredible and wonderful and joining us today. So I think it was yes. a good a good date and time to launch our uh, Stu shout out merch. <laughs> <laughs> Could not be more flattered. You, I just appreciate everything you guys had to say. Also, always appreciate how prepared you were and how much fun this was. So thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. We can't, I, I literally cannot tell you how much this time has meant like talking <laughs> to you, learning about your life, learning about all the amazing people that you've come across. Like, Wow, what a what a life you've I had! I had goosebumps and... this whole time, and my computer shut down for about seven <laughs> minutes of it, and I still had goosebumps throughout that part too. <laughs> really, really appreciate it. So, obviously, looking forward to hearing the episode when you put it together, and have fun doing it. And thanks, thanks for reaching out initially. Really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank really you so thank much. You enough. So, take care. Well. Bye. 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 Well. Hey, that was hey, incredible. Al. It's me, Al. <laughs> um, that was I'm never probably... going to be the same. 
That was probably one of the greatest moments of my life. I, what a guy, man. Like, it. you know, we were talking about how, like, it was so comforting to know that, like, he had met all of these other people who we looked up to who turned out to be good people. But what a lovely thing to find out that the person who literally wrote our childhoods is the also a really incredible man in the entire world. <laughs> I think I, one of the, the the things I admire most about him is how like how well he talks of others. Yes. I mean, you could just tell he has a lot of respect for everyone around him. Yeah. Like his default position is like respect and kindness, yeah. which I think is such a wonderful thing. Like, yeah. Well, and I think that's why he succeeded for so long. And I think that's why he's a good teacher as well. I could sit in yeah. any one of his classes and. You know, I'm a I'd terrible be, student, but I would I'd get all of his office hours. Yeah. I'd be like, tell me everything you could possibly tell me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to write more now because he told me to. Yeah, you exclusively have to. Because Stu you told actually me to. have to. <laughs> uh, I know. I didn't I'm know how to out. say, uh, I don't want to write, but I just want to be on the TV. Stu, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> you could have. I'm sure he would have had some kind of advice for you. Who knew that when he liked on Instagram... Our reel making fun of one of the movies he wrote to the point <laughs> that it would have led up to this. Like, <laughs> Although it wasn't the writing, it was the acting that we were making. It was 100% the acting. Um, truly, who who could have guessed? I think that this is the start of a beautiful interviewing career for us. And like we couldn't have gotten a better first decom interview than Stu Krieger. If any other, you know, decom affiliated folks want to come on our show. Yeah, because they all listened to this. I mean, <laughs> maybe they will now. Yeah. Maybe they will. Maybe <laughs> Henry Winkler. Hey, hey, Ron Howard. What and are you Steven doing? Spielberg and George Lucas. Yeah. George Lucas. George Lucas, please. I am so obsessed. Val, with you can do that one on your please. own. <laughs> Wait, George, maybe please? you can tell me what's, what Star Wars is about. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for listening to our special uh, Stu Shoutout interview episode. We hope you were surprised and excited as we were. We had so much fun doing this and hopefully we'll be lucky enough to do some more in the future. But if this is the only one, man, was it a good one. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would like to say that Stu Krieger is one of my best friends now. <laughs> He's my mentor. <laughs> and uh, we're getting brunch in January. So <laughs> every January every forever. January. <laughs> He's stuck with us now. Um, all right. Next episode, Val just told me in my ear, little bird named Val just told me in my ear, is Full Court Miracle. So we're going to pick yep. right back up where we left off. Yep. And play some b-ball. I'm assuming that's what it's about. Playing some Full Court Miracles. <laughs> okay. We all love you so much. Love you. And goodbye to my best friends, too. <laughs> Bye, Val. Bye, Val. This podcast was produced by me. And me. And it was edited by me. The music was composed by Michael McNally. You can find us online at thetridentnetwork.com slash decommentaries hyphen pod. And you can find us on Instagram and TikTok at decommentaries. Decommentaries is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Disney Channel Original Movies. Damn it, Allie.